Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. We are ushering in the second week of Women's History Month. Women's History Month began with International Women's Day, which was first observed on March 8, 1910. Women's History Week was first officially recognized in March 1980, and in March 1987, about 34 years ago, Congress passed a law formally designating March as Women's History Month. Because the accomplishments of women, particularly Black women, have often been ignored by the male-focused recounting of history, it's important that we take time during the months of February and March to pay particular attention to the contributions of Black women throughout history. During this evening's show, we are delighted to have a conversation with the trailblazing North Carolina legal jurist who has served as an inspiration to me personally and as an inspiration to lawyers young and old, male and female, black and white, in the state of North Carolina and beyond. Our guest this evening is Patricia Timmons Goodson, who was the first African-American woman to serve on the North Carolina Supreme Court. Justice Timmons, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Professor Dawson, it's a pleasure to be with you and with Professor Joyner. So let's start with having you share a little bit about your early life and what led you to want to become a lawyer. Sure. Well, um, I was born in Florence, South Carolina to an army private and uh, his wife, a homemaker at that time. And um, my father was from Florence County, so out in the country. And he tells us that he wanted to get off of the farm. And so he joined the military. He joined the army. I like to think that I have just a fraction of the courage that it took him to leave all that was familiar to him to enlist in the army. And so that was the, the beginning. As I uh, mentioned to you earlier in our conversation, I'm the oldest of six. So there were five more to come later, but uh, dad and mom served in the military and I spent my early years in Europe on a military base in, in Germany. We returned to North Carolina uh, and he was stationed at Fort Bragg and we later went to Fort Riley, Kansas and uh, on back home to South Carolina during the Vietnam era and um, again back to Fort Bragg. So I say all of that to say that I am the product of a military family and very much grew up 
interacting with different folks um, from different ethnic groups and different communities. And I learned to extend myself and to, uh, to get along with others. Dad and mom believed in education. They indicated that what you got up here in your head no one could ever take it away from you. And they were convinced that if you worked hard, if you played by the rules, and if you got a good education, that good things would happen to you. And I believe that. I'll add that apparently the other five siblings got the message too, because we've all managed to graduate from college and earn a graduate uh, and or a professional degree. But I chose UNC Chapel Hill when it came time for me to go to college. So I finished college there, remained for law school and um, was licensed to practice law in North Carolina in 1981. So, uh, you, you, you have a, um, a history that includes Jim Crow. Yes. And the Jim Crow era. And um, can you talk about the advantages that you had during the Jim Crow period growing up in a military family and being sure. a part of a military, uh, militarily structured regime, both, I guess, in, <clears throat> in your family life as well as in uh, uh, your uh, community uh, interactions during that time? Yes. Let me begin by saying that I do credit uh, a good deal of my success to the military and the military experience that my family had. I point out that I was born in 1954, September, as a matter of fact, and I believe, Professor Dawson, that was but four months after uh, the historic Brown decision. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, one of the cases that was a part of Brown, uh, the Brown cases, came out of Clarendon County, South Carolina. That is my mother's birth county. And so, but because daddy was in the military and because the military integrated sooner than the rest of our society, when I began kindergarten, In Germany, it was in an integrated setting. And so I don't believe you'll find many individuals uh, born in the South the year that I was born to have not attended a segregated school system. And that was because of uh, the the foresight or whatever you might choose to call it of our military. Uh, And so... But having said that, the military offered a structure and a a camaraderie and a sense of family, even in the, the most segregated of times and situations, because in order for a military to function effectively, there has to be uniformity, there has to be order, There has to be cooperation. There has to be the esprit de corps 
to make it work. And so whether you were black or white, whether you were in a segregated situation uh, or an integrated one, the values that I've just mentioned were always a part of that. And so my father, of course, believed in that. And of course, you would have to in order to succeed, have any success in the military, but it also becomes a part of who you are. And so you might not be surprised to know that there was order and discipline in the Timmons household as well. There were rules and you followed the rules inside the home and outside of the home. If you fail to abide by the rules outside of the home, there was a good chance that was going to reflect on your father's career. You know, I remember hearing my father say uh, that if a man, and at the time, at that time, that's what was mostly in the military, if a man could not handle his home, many would doubt his ability to handle the leadership and, and do what was required with his quote unquote troops. So there was discipline and there was order in the Timmons household. But my parents, as I said, believed in education, believed in rules. And the other thing that they did that I value so much and has always shaped me is uh, they believed in the church. They had a strong faith. And so I don't care where we were stationed. They always found a church uh, or a chapel that had a Sunday school program and the Timmons children were going to be there. So the other thing that I'll say about the military experience, as I try to answer your question, Professor Joyner, is that I learned in and through my military experience to extend myself to others. I learned not to wait on others to approach me or to engage me. And that was because if you failed to extend yourself and if no one extended themselves to you, you were likely to spend that tour of duty by yourself with no friends. And we, we understand how important associations and friendships are to, to children. And so Pat and San learn to, to make friends easily. And so uh, that I believe is one of the, the values uh, that I learned uh, through our association with the military. Mm -hmm. And Justice Timmons Goodson, how, at what point did the spark occur in you to decide to become a lawyer? I cannot identify, Professor Dawson, the exact moment that that occurred, but I will tell you that throughout my early life, being the oldest and often finding my way to where the adults were, I would be privy to conversations about situations, some of them troublesome. And I noticed that at some point, and usually toward the end, if they, the adults involved, were unable to come up with a solution, somebody 
would always say, you need to go see a lawyer. And so I got in my young head that lawyers were folks that could make things happen and that could solve problems. Now, of course, as an adult, I learned that there are many professions that are able to solve problems, but I got in my head that it was lawyers and I wanted to be um, that person. And so I did not get into the law for any lofty reason, you know, um, civil rights and to make sure that uh, every, no, I just wanted to help folks solve problems that they could not solve on their own. Now, your, your answer suggests that you were uh, a kind of arbitrator or mediator uh, within the home, uh, having uh, six siblings younger uh, than you. And I know that there was a lot of conflict uh, that uh, erupted uh, between them. And I would think, and this is just my guess, so correct me if I'm wrong, that as the older uh, person that you had to uh, resolve a lot of that conflict before it came to the attention of your mother and father. <laughs> um, oh, ab absolutely. Um, there were, I had five younger siblings. Uh, and yes, uh, we did not always agree on everything. So often I found myself resolving whatever dispute there was. And Fortunately, though, I'm going to say that there were not a whole lot of those. Um, I, I love my siblings uh, dearly, and they cooperated. Mom and dad, when they left the house, everyone understood that Pat was in charge, and, and they listened. And, and perhaps that relates back to the order and the discipline, mm -hmm. you know, that, that, uh, was, that, that we observed uh, and that we were taught. But uh, yes, there were some disputes and I was the arbiter uh, of that. Let me share one uh, story. My sister, Sandra, who's uh, next to me, uh, Sandra uh, tells about the time that a young, um, one of the younger uh, children was writing. And, you know, if you're writing on a soft wood and you don't have something under it, you're uh, the letters are kind of are carved to some degree into the wood. Well, my parents had worked very hard and purchased a mahogany or mahogany-like bedroom suit. And uh, one of the uh, boys was in the room writing on the uh, dresser, I believe it was. And you could see it all. And before that, it had been a pristine dresser, uh, nicely polished anyway nobody was confessing to doing it and so uh i told i i saw it before my parents got home so i knew there were going to be some questions asked and so i wanted to know who did it and nobody would speak up and so i told them i was not going to get a spanking for something i didn't do and what i wanted each person to do is to come and place their hand on the Bible and say, I didn't do it. And if, if they put their hand on the Bible and told a story, because we could not say lie, of course, and told a story that their hand was going to shrivel up. And so my um, youngest brother, 
um, Philip, uh, who I might add is a physician in Raleigh to this day, uh, before he put his hand down, he said, and you say, you say your hand will shrivel up? I said, that's right. It'll shrivel up. He moved his hand. He said, I did it. And so, you know, the situation was so when my parents came in, I could report that things had been really quiet, except that Phil had been writing on the dresser. And um, so you see that. So anyway, I've been resolving disputes uh, and disagreements for a long time. Which was just forecasting where you would um, uh, ultimately end up as far as your um, distinguished career as a, as a jurist, which we are anxious to hear about as well. We're going to have to take a quick break, though. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And as part of our recognition of March being Women's History Month, we are delighted to have with us here in our Zoom studio, Justice Patricia Timmons Goodson, who is the first African-American woman to serve on the North Carolina Supreme Court. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. We hope you stay with us. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I am a 2L at North Carolina Central University School of Law. This week on the Legal Eagle Review, we discussed Women's History Month. Throughout our history, despite hardships, exclusion, and discrimination, women have strived and sacrificed for equity and equality in communities across the country. Educators in Santa Rosa, California, first celebrated Women's History Week in March 1978 to increase awareness of women's contributions to society. They selected a week in early March to correspond with International Women's Day on March 8th. Over the next two years, other cities across the country began to celebrate Women's History Week. In 1980, as a result of lobbying by women's groups and historians, President Jimmy Carter issued a proclamation declaring the week of March 8th as National Women's History Week. This week was expanded to a month in 1987 when Congress passed Public Law 100-9 that designated March as Women's History Month. Every year, the National Women's History Alliance chooses a theme for the month. The theme for 2022 is Women Providing Healing, Promoting Hope. They describe this theme as both a tribute to the ceaseless work of caregivers and frontline workers during this ongoing pandemic and also recognition of the thousands of ways that women of all cultures have provided both healing and hope throughout history. This is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for uh, staying with us as we uh, continue our conversation with uh, the Honorable Patricia Timmon Goodson. Uh, she is uh, one of the uh, female sheroes uh, in uh, in our world, in our uh, community, and a part of uh, our lives. And she has many firsts. Uh, under her belt uh, within the uh, legal uh, profession and in the uh, community uh, at large. But uh, she's talking about uh, her life, uh, her uh, upbringing. And then we're going to talk about the uh, contributions that that she's made. Unfortunately, she uh, ended up over at Carolina uh, as uh, an undergrad and then as a uh, law student. But she has uh, fond memories of uh, 
of North Carolina Central. So can you just start us off by talking about the decision that you made to, uh, to go to uh, University of North Carolina at, uh, at, at Chapel Hill and what that experience meant to you in light of the uh, military upbringing that you had? Uh, yes, Professor, uh, Professor Joyner. My father was stationed at Fort Bragg um, back when I was in the second, third, and fourth grades. And I had a cousin from South Carolina that was attending Durham Business College. And so once a month or so, the family would load up in the car and we would drive up to Durham to get her, to bring her to Fort Bragg and she would stay the weekend and then we would return her. And so I can remember my father uh, asking all of, at that time there were five children, asking the five of us, uh, you think I can send one of y'all up here to, at that time, North Carolina College? And I was like, oh yeah, dad, oh yeah. Keep in mind that was only the, the third campus that I had ever um, been on. I uh, had back uh, in South Carolina, my grandmother was a graduate of um, the uh, Baptist College there, uh, Morris College in Sumter, South Carolina. And, and then there was Fayetteville State uh, College at that time in Fayetteville where I lived. And so I had been in the car and we'd read. Through. So North Carolina Central was, um, was North Carolina College was the only the third campus I'd ever been on. And it was so much larger than the other two that I had visited. And so I was like, oh yeah, dad, absolutely. And so that's where I was going. Uh, up until my junior year in high school, uh, Chapel Hill had a program that they called Project Uplift, and it was aimed at recruiting African-American students. This was 1971, recruiting African-American students to come to Chapel Hill. And so the guidance counselor signed me up, and so... I came up to Chapel Hill and I fell in love. It was in the spring of the year in April. The blossoms were in bloom. The campus was beautiful. And so um, I said then that I wanted to go to Chapel Hill and that's where I ended up. And, and, and kind of describe the meaning of that experience uh, to you because obviously you, uh, you flourished uh, there. And, yes. uh, and I think a large part of it had to do with the uh, discipline, life, uh, that uh, you had uh, uh, experienced growing up. I agree with that assessment, um, Professor uh, Joyner. Um, so not only did I have a beautiful uh, campus, but um, my interaction with professors uh, and with other students was all positive. And so the experience required me to work hard, uh, to reach out and extend myself, to ask for help when you didn't understand things. And that was often because of the size of the classrooms. And so I think that I went there with the measure of independence that one would need to flourish in and on a campus uh, with a large number of students and, and large classroom size. And that's exactly what, um, what I did. I eventually was uh, student body secretary and was uh, a resident advisor in the dormitory that was a way of earning a little extra money. And I 
as a result of my campus-wide activities, was inducted into two of the honorary societies, the Order of the Valkyries and the Order of the Old Well. And so I did flourish at Chapel Hill. And as a matter of fact, of my five siblings, uh, three of the five came to Chapel Hill and two of those three got graduate and professional degrees there as well. And so I say that to go back to your comment about the military experience. I, I think that it did make uh, that place a good fit uh, for for us. Now, law school can be a bit jarring for many a law student, right? So, and I know you've um, heard and and maybe even experienced yourself. But I know when I went to law school, I was not entirely prepared for the rigors, even though I did well uh, at the undergraduate. Law school is just a different beast. Can you share your law school experience? Professor Dawson, uh, it was difficult. It was scary. I was not prepared for the law school experience. I'll just have to confess that I had received, I thought, a good education at Chapel Hill. But there's the law school is different. One of the biggest differences requires you to learn, in effect, a new language. This is no exaggeration, but Pat Timmons did not know the difference between a plaintiff and a defendant. I, I, I'm, I'm serious. You, I'm, I go, who goes to law school uh, in their first year and doesn't know plaintiff you know, versus defendant? I mean, I was apt, so it required me and, and everyone to learn uh, a new language. And then on top of that, I was competing with students that were second, third, and even fourth generation lawyers. I, of course, was the first in my family to go to law school. I learned uh, how later a couple of the students had the forethought or the parents that knew what the deal was, just like we take review courses to help us with the LSAT now. At that time, and I'm talking about 1976, one could, and I believe you still can, pay and take a course that prepares you for the first semester of law school. And so they learn how to brief cases they learned what a study group was. Just basic things that I had to learn and had to make a decision on while large amounts of information uh, were being um, thrown at me and I was required to assess it. So it took me some time to get my feet on the ground. And so you know, your law school experience is largely governed by that first semester. Mm. And um, like I said, it was rough. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, your point is such an, an, a good one because it speaks to why representation matters. It speaks to why mentorship matters. Yes. Uh, so many of African-American students, even today, are first generation 
and they don't know any lawyers or don't have lawyers in their family or don't have people that they can talk to and ask about some of the things that folks who are surrounded by lawyers um, you know, they're, they're, they get that information, they get the tips and the tricks. And, and so sometimes performance has nothing to do with ability. Sometimes performance has nothing to do with desire. Sometimes it just has to do with who you were surrounded by who can whisper in your ear about tips and tricks that might make the process a little easier. So uh, we appreciate you, um, you know, being uh, open about your experience. I'm sure that will be comforting to, you know, law students that we know listen to this program or people that are interested in, in going to law school and becoming lawyers or, or any type of uh, profession. You know, you don't know what you don't know. And so if you can reach out to folks, and even if you don't have people within your family, seek mentors. Um, there are plenty of people out there who are willing to, to help you. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, you, 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 you talked about the um, experience at uh, Chapel Hill. And I believe at that time, uh, Charles Day yes. uh, was uh, beginning his tenure there at the law school. And you were a part of a small delegation of African-Americans at the uh, school. So could you kind of talk about the interfacing that uh, you experienced? with uh, Charles, who was one of the first uh, African-Americans to serve on the uh, faculty uh, there, and then with uh, really a very successful class of other African-Americans who graduated out of uh, Carolina as a part of the class that you were in. Yes. Uh, I'm a part of the UNC Law Class of 1979, so I entered in the fall of 1976. Um, my class had about uh, 260, 270 students uh, in it. About, um, I was a part of, that class had the largest number of African-American students to date. Uh, there were about 21, 23 of us in that first class. And it was also the largest class of women uh, as well. And so Charles Day was taught torts and was uh, our professor. He and Norma, I love the two of them. Uh, he and Norma would host events at their home, uh, social events at their home to help the students, to help the African-American students. And we would go over there and took full advantage of their hospitality and you knew that you could talk to him if you needed to, but he was no nonsense. You're not going to go in there belly aching or complaining about something that you had the control over or you were going to get what you deserved, which was, well, how hard are you studying? Tell me about your studying. How are you going about that? And so it makes a difference, though, when you see professors that look like you in control of a classroom and teaching. And we were all familiar with his background, uh, how he uh, had worked at one of the, I guess they call them um, white shoe uh, law firms in uh, New York, uh, following his graduation from, from law school. We knew how smart he was, obviously. And so 
we had a tremendous amount of respect and, and continue for Professor Day and for his wonderful wife, Norma. Yeah, Charles was a uh, trailblazer mm -hmm. in uh, so many uh, ways. And, uh, and I'm sure he brought a little bit of the uh, uh, North Carolina College experience with him uh, <laughs> over to Chapel Hill to help uh, those of you who uh, who were uh, captured under his, uh, his his leadership, but then you 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 left law school, when yes. you graduated obviously uh, from there and went back to uh, to Fayetteville. Uh, you ended up in the uh, district attorney's office. Um, and let me uh, say that that's true. Um, and I I began. Well, let me back up just a a, a wee bit um, about this. Uh, on on that question, um, I did not. I was not successful on the bar exam the first time, and uh, we. That's devastating for someone that has never um, failed at anything. To have such a public failing is just um, crushing. Mm. But fortunately, I had people around me that encouraged and made sure that I understood that I was just as smart the day after the results came in as uh, when I began the exam or even when I began my legal education. So I have spoken to a number of law students that were crushed because they failed to pass the first time. And they're surprised to hear me say, oh, you did, me too. And they're like, you too? I was like, mm-hmm, mm -hmm. but you know you're just as smart as you've ever been. Don't you let uh, something like that um, cause you to doubt yourself. You just keep right on marching. Good things are in store for you. And even with my um, lack of success, I still became a judge at the age of 29. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes things happen. And I tell the young people that I talk to uh, this. Sometimes things happen. You don't understand why, but you must trust that uh, it's happening for the best. In my situation, I had to take a job other than the one I had planned to take. I had a job lined up in the DA's office. But, of course, you have to have a license. Instead, I worked uh, with the U.S. Census Bureau as a district manager was in charge of some 750 employees. It required me to go out into parts of the Cumberland County community that I knew nothing about. And as a result of that, I made friends and met people that I later would be able to call upon to assist me in my political efforts. And so while at that time I thought I was going to die, um, I ended up doing very benefiting, I guess I should say, greatly uh, from the time um, off. So uh, just know that um, this road to becoming a lawyer is not necessarily one that is paved and, and easy. Uh, if you want it, work and fight for it and you go get it. Mm -hmm. And so my first job was in the D, my first legal job was in the DA's office um, after I passed the bar. And I, um, but you know, I took that job. I, I started off, I wanted to be a public defender. 
And so I went, I dressed up in my Sunday go to meeting Navy lawyer suit and went to the office of the public defender, introduced myself and said that I'd like to talk about possible possible, um, employment. This was uh, during my third year and was told we don't have any positions and there was no offer to take my resume. And so it happened so quickly when I went outside the door, I was like, oh my goodness, it's over already. What are you gonna do now, Pat? And so um, I didn't know, but something told me, and whenever I don't know how I did something, I give credit to the master, said, why don't you go to the DA's office, go down one level and talk to them. I walked in that office and introduced myself and said, uh, I was a third year law student and I wanted to speak with someone about the possibility of employment. And so they said, well, hold on a second. They went and got the DA. The DA came and and escorted me to his office, told me I don't have any positions at this time, but tell me about yourself. I sat and visited with him. When I finished, he said, I'll call you if something comes up. And that's how I ended up in the DA's office. So Uh, know that you might have a plan, but you're going to have to be willing to consider other options. And then after I got the job, my friends were like, I can't believe you're going to put the brothers and the sisters in jail. I was like, wait a minute, y'all. You obviously don't understand. That's where the power is. I figured it out. That's where the power is. I can be even more effective there. And they're, you know, they shake their heads up, but that's where I went. And that's exactly what I, I learned. In addition to that, I got lots of trial experience. Mm, And I thought I was going to be uh, this great trial lawyer because I won all of my cases. Uh, Little did I know that it didn't have anything to do with my voice or my great personality, uh, but the power of the state. And so, uh, Anyway, um, I, I did that. And uh, after two years, people began to come to me and said, have you heard the legislature is creating a sixth district court judgeship? And the DA says, Pat, if I were you, I'd be thinking about that. And I was like, I don't want to be a judge because I'm going to be the next great trial lawyer uh, you know, in this town. So he says, well, you know, you do what you want to do, but I just think you'd make a good judge. And uh, folks continue to come and to say things like that to me. And uh, finally, uh, I said, you know, Pat, you said you wanted to make a difference. There's never been an African-American district court judge here. You know, you probably ought to consider this thing. And so I did seek it. And I was appointed by Governor Hunt uh, at the age of 20, uh, 29. And so uh, it um, things work out. All right. This is the uh, Legal Legal Review, and uh, we're talking with uh, the Honorable uh, Patricia Timmon Goodson about her rise uh, from uh, the uh, military ranks uh, of her uh, family into uh, the district court judgeship in uh, Cumberland County. Uh, and uh, this is a part of our series on uh, African American sheroes, uh, those who have helped to uh, pave uh, the way. And uh, certainly uh, the Honorable Patricia Timmon Goodson fits into that category. We're gonna take our break. 
uh, right now. I want you to uh, stay with us. We still have a lot to uh, to talk about. And, uh, we'll be right back. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I am currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And this is your community spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any legal program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host, Irving Joyner, and I have been talking with one of our sheroes, the Honorable Patricia Timmons Goodson, who was the first African-American woman to serve on the North Carolina Supreme Court. And we have enjoyed thoroughly hearing her share her journey with us. And so, uh, Judge, right before the break, you were talking about being appointed at 29 to be the first African-American woman on the district court in your county. So you have talked about support that you've received kind of throughout your journey. Can you talk about the support you received during that time period? I know the Black lawyers, they were few in numbers, but they were incredibly strong and and supportive. Can you talk about the people in your life that helped you gain the confidence to accept that position and help guide you in in what it meant to be a judge? Uh, Absolutely. Um, You know, if I've just been so incredibly blessed. If the Lord had said, uh, Pat, you can have whatever you want um, professionally, you pick and choose. There's no way in the world I would have uh, selected the opportunities that I've been blessed to uh, to have. And it would not have happened without the support of um, the quote unquote community. And I'm not just talking, uh, you know, geographically uh, here in Cumberland County, but, but throughout uh, the black lawyers of North Carolina, are an incredible group and and we've always been strong and we've we've worked together that certainly was my experience uh, coming along and so when it came time for me to seek letters of support asking Governor Hunt to appoint me a district court judge um, I knew where to go I went to the black lawyers around the state requesting that they send in letters and so when I was appointed uh, it was a celebration, not just of Pat uh, going on the bench, but it was a celebration um, of 
a, a black lawyer that so many had invested in getting it. I recall fondly, I was sworn in on the 17th of September of 1986. And uh, it was at four o'clock in the afternoon because we wanted the citizens to be able to come often, or in the past, it was always at nine o'clock in the morning. And then the judge would go on the bench. Well, the supporters and the folks that I knew worked jobs and they just can't come at, you know, and be there at 8.30 and 9 o'clock for that. So we scheduled in the afternoon. Among the folks uh, that came, Professor Joyner, I don't know if he recalls, but he was there. And so we, um, a, a, as well as um, uh, uh, Professor Day. Uh, and anyway, just so many others, because as I said, it was a celebration, not just of Pat, but of the Black lawyers. But we went following the swearing in that evening um, to another location and Irv Joyner was there. And I remember the advice that he gave. Um, basically, he said, um, we want you um, to be a good judge. You know, we want you uh, to be fair. Uh, we want you to be just above all. We want you to be just. And I've never forgotten, uh, forgotten that. So, Justice, you served as a district court judge, and it was never your intention, at least initially, to be a judge, but you found the opportunity, you found that you were ready, you found that you had the support, you were a district court judge, and then you had the opportunity to serve as a judge on the North Carolina Court of Appeals. Share with us how that opportunity came about and what led you to take advantage of it. Sure. Um, Professor Dawson, I must confess that, uh, again, I was not successful on my first try. As a district court judge, after about 10 years, I uh, could see that um, it was time for me to leave. Uh, district court judges have uh, one of the most difficult uh, jobs in our legal system. You are day in and day out hearing directly from our citizens about some very difficult uh, times in their lives and you're called upon to apply the law and make decisions. Uh, it's very easy after 10, 12 years for one to become hardened. I've heard that, yeah, I've heard that. And just um, not have the kind of compassion um, that, that one needs. And so I was beginning to feel that. And I learned that there was an opening on the Court of Appeals in 1994, I believe it was. And so I sought the appointment and was not successful. Uh, Judge Linda McGee got that appointment. So about two years later, there was another vacancy. And I sought that asked Governor Hunt again to appoint me, and it is that time that I was successful. But that appointment uh, followed the retirement of Judge Clifton Johnson from Mecklenburg County. And I can't say enough about Judge Johnson. Uh, he was a former district court judge, superior court judge, and court of appeals judge. And he should have been a chief, the chief district court, excuse me, the chief uh, judge of the court of appeals. But Judge Johnson timed his retirement in a way that was really good for me and would have been good for whoever was appointed. 
it was done, uh, his retirement uh, date was marked in a way that gave whoever the governor appointed the maximum amount of time in the position before having to stand for election. And so I will forever be grateful to him for, for doing that. So I was appointed to the Court of Appeals and uh, sworn in on the 1st of February of 1997 and did not have to stand for election until November of 1998. So just a perfect, um, it gave me time to settle in, to learn my job, and at the same time uh, to begin moving around the state for what was going to be my first statewide um, campaign. Well, so I, it I, makes it so it makes a difference. Like that's the point I'm trying to to to, to make. It, it does make a difference how you leave. You know, it's wonderful to serve, uh, but know that when you leave, somebody's going to follow you. I believe that a real leader works to try to ensure that the individual that follows has uh, is it has what it takes to be the kind of um, judge or, or person that you would want to see in a position. And I, I need to just take some credit for the fact that uh, Judge Johnson was uh, uh, one of the renowned legal eagles uh, coming out of uh, North Carolina Central. Absolutely. And you know, as I know, he did not hire um, a law clerk unless they came out of North Carolina Central's law school. And he said it and he was intentional uh, about it. Uh, he said that uh, it did not appear that other members of the court were hiring law clerks of color. And uh, he was going to do something about that. And he did some mighty fine. Uh, Judge uh, Brenda um, Gibson was a law clerk to Judge Clifton Johnson. And I had the good sense to keep her uh, mm. when I went uh, on the court. And so she clerked for me and she taught me how to be an appellate judge. And I'm serious <laughs> about that. Uh, you know, she taught me how to uh, write uh, these uh, appellate decisions. Yeah. But, you know, not, not only did you have uh, mentors that you, you followed, but you also mentored others uh, who followed you. Uh, and I, I, I give certainly uh, in that category, uh, Chief Justice uh, Sherry Beasley, uh, who kind of uh, trailed you uh, up the path uh, to uh, becoming a, a member of the uh, North Carolina Supreme Court, and then as uh, Chief Justice, can, can you kind of talk about the uh, the relationship uh, that uh, that you had with some of those mentees, and then how your mentors uh, helped you to kind of form uh, the uh, assistance and directions that you would provide uh, to others uh, in, within the judiciary? Uh, absolutely. Um, as I indicated before. I had mentors, folks that I looked to and learned so very much from. And I am convinced that my path was um, broadened, uh, was softened by 
the 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 ex- my experience with them and what they taught me and what they passed on to me. And so I have always sought to do the very uh, same thing. Um, you know, we all need mentors. You know, a mentor will be able to uh, help you get to where you want to be faster. Um, I believe that uh, you will be able to acquire uh, certain experiences and lessons and, and then take them and, and work on them. But I want you to, to know that uh, there's no way that you can help everybody. I mean, you, you, you just can't. But when you see people that uh, demonstrate um, qualities that you know it takes to succeed, you know it when you see it. Mm-hmm. And so you just uh, often gravitate toward folks like that and uh, share with them and they share with you and you're able to, uh, to assist them. And so everything that I've done was in an effort to help uh, others achieve their goals, just as there had been folks that were present for me and helped me achieve mine. What advice would you give to law students, young lawyers who are kind of starting their legal journey um, and may not know yet what the future holds is you know, you didn't at the time that you were, you thought you were going to go in one direction and, you know, fate kind of took you in another direction. Do you have any advice or words of wisdom that you can share with law students and young lawyers? Uh, yes, I would share that uh, they should always work hard wherever they are, mm-hmm. endeavoring to learn all that they can, even when they don't see the relevance or the importance of it. And you do that so that you are prepared for whatever comes your way. I must confess that our legal profession uh, is changing and is in many respects in a bit of a, a flux. And so law graduates may not immediately have the opportunity uh, to do what um, he or she might want to do at that time. But what you can do is make sure that whatever opportunity you avail yourself of, uh, that you maximize that experience and that you engage, you make sure that it offers the kinds of experiences that you can build on. And so what do I mean by that? Uh, So for example, you know that you want to uh, at some point um, become a uh, a trial lawyer, you know, uh, or something, but you, well, that's not a good example, uh, but you want to, you know where you want to be and what you want to do. Well, if you have to take a position other than that, make sure that that position is going to allow you to, to work on and to build a foundation of skills, uh, and and uh, a bit talents that you can then carry on to the next level. I frequently encourage law students to consider uh, criminal work in the district attorney's office. And so they're like, I've even had some of um, uh, North Carolina's central graduates say, Justice, I don't want to be a DA. 
I said, do you have a job? No, ma'am. I said, well, you know, uh, your law school needs for you to be employed within six months of, of, of graduation. Um, that's uh, a reflection on them. You take that job. Uh, and so you will learn, though, how to uh, be comfortable in the courtroom. You'll learn how uh, to, to make arguments and to structure, uh, you know, your, your, your arguments and to try cases. That experience is transferable. And, you know, you can take that on to something else. And so the, the law students need to be willing uh, to consider options that they may not want to consider, but that will give them the kinds of experiences that they can build. And so that's one piece of advice. The second piece of advice um, that I will offer uh, is often others will see in you qualities uh, long before you see them in yourself. And so I hope you will not discount what others are saying, that you have to be flexible. You have to be willing uh, to perhaps change your plans as I was. I'm going to be a trial uh, lawyer, but, um, you know, you know, go listen um, and learn. And finally, I'll say it's good out here and there's plenty for all of us. Get on out here. And as the old folks used to say, uh, show them what you know. <laughs> Well, those are very wise words for us to end on. Thank you so much, Justice Patricia Timmons Goodson, for taking time and just sharing with us and uh, again, demonstrating why it is that you are such an inspiration to so many of us and so many more, I'm sure, after um, folks have had an opportunity to hear this program. Uh, thank you, our guest, as always, for spending your Sunday evening with the Legal Eagle Review. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any comments or questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find us on the Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.